welcome to the Educator's Blueprint Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Lisa Powers and Dr. Trisha Guffey. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Educator's Blueprint Podcast. We are so glad that you are joining us today. My name is Trisha Guffey, and I am here with my co-host, Lisa Powers. And in this podcast, we talk about all things education from the classroom to the boardroom. How are you today, Lisa? I'm wonderful. Excited to have our conversation again this morning. I know. Now, our conversation today is a little bit different than what we yeah. usually do. Usually we have series and it's like, this is one topic and we talk about it for several weeks. But today we're, this is our very first bonus, bonus. episode. Bonus. <laughs> bonus episode. So okay, let's talk real quick before we dive in today. What exactly is a bonus episode? What are we doing today, Lisa? It is an opportunity to take something relevant, meaningful, or what we've heard from the field is important and, and add it to our series of podcasts. So something just in time that we think is extra special that you want to hear about. I like that just in time. So our series is going to be returning in a few short weeks. We'll start back up with series again, but we wanted to make sure that um, this was a conversation Lisa and I had had, and we're like, you know what, that'd be kind of interesting to learn a little bit more about. So that's what we're doing. So who exactly are we talking to today, Lisa, and what is our topic about? So for any of you that are curious about how did PBS even get started? How long have we been implementing PBS across? What did, what did it look like when it first started? Our topic is the history of PBS, and we're going to talk about the inception of it with one of the original researchers in the field, Dr. Tim Lewis. I like it earlier when you and I were talking, one of the founding fathers yes. of PBIS. Yes. Yeah, like a little friend here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I am excited to talk to him today. I feel like this is going to be a great episode. Um, and that I know for me personally, as someone who does work, I don't know all the history of how things started. I know that you were back in with him back in the day when you guys were doing research and things like that. So I'm anxious to hear all about this stuff. So oh, stay tuned. Here he comes. <laughs> All right, let's let let's start the conversation. We'd like to welcome back Dr. Tim Lewis. Tim was our first guest on uh, the Educators Blueprint podcast and has right now, I think, the most downloads. <laughs> he is also our first two-time guest. So we're excited to have him back as a founding father of PBIS to talk a little bit about the history and where PBS started. When did it start? What did it look like? and what future directions we might be going. So before we get started, Tim, if you could spend a few minutes just introducing yourself for those who had missed the first podcast you were on. Sure, I, I like the, the two-time guest. I'm wondering, like, am I gonna get a special jacket? You know, like the when Saturday, you hit five. Night, Live, yeah. the Saturday <laughs> Live Hook Club, you know? <laughs> then we'll say, well, last time we talked about runnings and when you finish, we're like, oh, you can run 20 miles. Now you can run 40 miles. <laughs> That's your, there is your ticket, 40 yeah. miles. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, thanks for asking me back. Uh, I'm Tim Lewis. I'm a professor of special education here at the University of Missouri, uh, also one of uh, the co-directors Center for Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports. So we also know that you were one of the founding fathers, I guess is the best way to describe it, or one of, you were on the ground when EBS, PBS, PBIS, whatever you want to call it, first started. I first met yeah. you and it was effective behavior supports. That's right. Um, and so what did that look like when it, how did it get started? What was the intent? What was the need? What was the decade? 
<laughs> yeah. So how long are these podcasts again? <laughs> this might have to be a serial, right? <laughs> next week, um, the next decade. Yeah. We'll do leave little cliffhangers, you know. Last time we talked, it was 1979. <laughs> um, Everybody had big hair. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Whether they wanted to or not. <laughs> um, sure. You know, we're, we're oftentimes asked, it's sort of, where did this come from? And um, how did the center start? And, and why was the field interested in this idea of positive behavior support? So most of the work uh, began in the 80s. Uh, and within that decade, particularly the community that supported children and youth and young adults with severe disabilities, there was this real push to move to non-aversive. So if you think about our history, special education is, is not that old, right? 1975, the law passed that first entitled kids with disabilities to that free and appropriate public education. So prior to that, uh, most of the services were some states provided, some um, local school districts provided, a lot of more sort of community-based and private organizations. Um, and unfortunately, particularly in the 60s and 70s, you know, our science of behavior, as we talk about, it was pretty limited. Um, and a lot of these, particularly young adults with really significant disabilities, engaged in a lot of destructive behavior. So whether it be self-injurious behavior um, and or headbutting and, and all a whole range of pretty significant not only to their ability to sort of interact and function in society, but, but literally doing physical harm. Um, and at the time, the use of aversives was fairly common. So the science of behavior was pretty simplistic. You reinforced what you deemed appropriate and you tried to put in some sort of aversive uh, if they engage in behavior you deemed was inappropriate. And as the technology moved and as the science moved and, and as the larger community started becoming better advocates and all of a sudden larger society is seeing people with disabilities, right? Prior to that time, it was still kind of that sort of behind the scenes, if you will. And, and what happened was there's a large group of, of scholars that were really pushing towards what we know as the non-aversive movement saying, we need to figure out how to improve uh, and alter significant challenging behavior, but stop using aversives and start using our instructional technologies, use the principles of reinforcement, what we talked about last time we were together, uh, to, to move this forward. Also at about that same time in the early 80s, several scholars were looking at this idea of function. So Brian Adewada and Ed Carr and uh, Mark Durand and others were doing this really groundbreaking work where they were finding that even these young adults who had no ability to communicate verbally, they had no sign languages, you know, they were operating with IQs maybe in the 2030 range, were nevertheless communicating their needs and wants through their behavior. Uh, and so they started experimenting with different ways to assess and figure out, hey, this person doesn't want to do this task. That's why they're doing this behavior. Or, hey, this person is engaging this behavior because it's actually reinforcing to this person. Um, and, and that was a real game changer because in essence, what that did is it started us looking at, it's not just within the individual. What we've got to do is look at how that individual interacts with the environment. And if we want to change behavior, we have to simultaneously change the environment. So it's no longer about just a simplistic looking at the form of behavior, 
i.e. I'm hitting myself in my head or I'm saying a bad word or I'm threatening you, but rather the function of behavior. What's the communicative intent behind that? And as I said, that was a real game changer because that really fundamentally changed the field uh, of disability of special education and to some extent, the larger field. So during that time, we started thinking about, well, if we have to change the environment, what does that look like? Um, and, and I know you've heard me um, tell the story probably countless times of my first uh, teaching experience, you know, which I look back and because I did teach in those dark ages. Uh, unfortunately, it was about this, this time in that era. I had a self-contained class for high school kids with emotional behavior disorders. And, and the story I tell is while they were in my room, for the most part, they were okay. They were on task, they got along, they followed directions. The problem was the bell would ring and all hell would break loose, right? And, and at the time, it just didn't make sense to me. We just kept trying to give kids more skills, more this, more that. Well, I had the good fortune to go to school at the University of Oregon in the late 80s, early 90s. And, and at that time, it was kind of the, the epicenter, if you will, of research and scholars and people looking at particularly challenging behavior among kids with mild disabilities all the way into severe. And there were several of us that had that same story, myself and Jeff Colvin and George Sagai and our colleagues on the severe side, Rob Horner and, and several others. We all had that same story about the kids in our room were doing okay. Well, in hindsight, it makes sense because what I did is in my classroom is I created an environment matched to kid need. So yeah, they're 17, but they're reading on a second grade level. So I didn't hand them that, that typical US history book. I handed them reading at the level they could they could get through. So all this to say, you've got kind of this, all of a sudden, this explosion in supports for kids with disabilities because we now have a federal law mandating it. You have the field moving beyond kind of the old, what everybody thinks about or used to call BMOD or behavior modification, simply looking at the form of behavior and really focusing on the function. And until we meet that function or that need, we're not gonna alter that behavior. So all of this came about at the same time. And as I said, we all had kind of that same similar story. And so we started thinking about, you know, and again, you, you've, you've heard me say this before, as a special educator, I have no magic. <laughs> I have no secret powers. I have no special skills. I just have a set of technology, a set of instructional strategies that I can teach anybody. Uh, and so we started, as I said, we got together. So those of us kind of on the mild end and working with disabilities got together with our colleagues in severe. And we say, you know, the commonality across us is we're concerned about challenging behavior. We wanna promote uh, instructional strategies that move away from aversive strategies. And we all are thinking about function and not form. So that then led us to our work thinking about, okay, because there's nothing magic to this, can we get this at a larger scale? So in other words, can we get my classroom environment generalized to all high school classrooms? And not that I'm suggesting we, may, we wanted to make every classroom look like a special ed classroom, but rather understanding that technology, understanding the function of behavior, understanding the importance of setting up the environment. So at about the same time, uh, in the, the 80s and into the 90s, there was also a lot of research coming out showing um, the value of early intervention and prevention and investing in not only early intervention prevention for like preschoolers, but even kids that are in fifth grade and eighth grade. In other words, not waiting for the problems to become chronic and intense, but rather 
getting in there sooner rather than later, putting in some simple instructional environmental supports and hopefully altering the trajectory, not necessarily eliminating a disability, but altering that trajectory and the intensity. So all of these great things were coming together. At the same time, there was also this real push uh, because all of a sudden um, school shootings started getting on the rise and violence in the, the neighborhoods was on the rise. And all of a sudden there was this demand and this call to get tough. So we started seeing um, states and districts implement zero tolerance policies where you even look at somebody the wrong way, you are de facto out of this building. So we, at the same time that we're getting this technology and a better understanding of how to support children and youth with challenging behavior, there was this sort of societal push to get rid of these kids, to get them out of our schools. So as I said, all of these things kind of came together in sort of this perfect storm, as well as a perfect opportunity. Uh, so as I said, I was at the University of Oregon, um, and some of our colleagues on the sort of instructional side, so Ed Kamehameha and Jerry Tyndall, and again, uh, George Sugai had an early grant called Project Prepare. And that was all about trying to put in these early intervention prevention classroom supports. So both at the instructional side, the literacy, reading, academics, as well as the behavior side, right? So, so George was the behavior guy and Ed was the reading guy and Jerry was the assessment, right? And the database decision guy, uh, oversimplifying their role. <laughs> They're all amazing scholars uh, in their own right. But it was, a, it was a great sort of coming together uh, of minds, if you will. And so then that project was focusing primarily on classrooms. Uh, and I remember, um, you know, I had, again, the good fortune to be part of some of that research. And it was just really frustrating. We would go into classrooms. Uh, we would let teachers know, this is what we're looking for. We're going to count the number of times you do these things. And they said, yep, I know. And then we would sit and watch and they would do none of them. Uh, and, and so it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm sitting back here. I told you what I'm looking for. I got a clipboard. I'm counting. And it still didn't change behavior. So there was a, a special project call RFA came out through OSEP. And again, George and Jeff and I and others jumped into that. And that was the, the impetus of looking at, okay, we know we have to change environments. We know we got to move away from aversives. We know we have to think function, not form. We know we need to put in positive supports as opposed to simply trying to eliminate behavior. So the special project we called Effective Behavior Support, EBS, it just sounded like a good title. And so that's where that came from. George was a master at coming up with acronyms for grant uh, titles. So I can't even remember what PREPARE stood for, but it was an acronym. So we did Effective Behavior Support. And that was really our first work in saying, okay, we can't change teacher by teacher. And a lot of teachers wanted to do the right thing. They wanted to change their practices. But until we started building the supports at the school level, we knew we weren't getting any traction. And so that's really where the school-wide approach came from. So positive behavior support was an outcome from the non-aversive movement, right? So instead of trying to modify behavior, no, let's try to actually increase appropriate behavior. Our work in looking at changing classroom environments led us to the limitations that there are just too many classrooms and even teachers that were struggling and wanted help, we knew it was gonna take a larger concerted effort. And that's what led us into the school-wide. So that was a really long answer <laughs> to a relatively short, simple question. Um, and, and so 
let me pause there because <laughs> I've got a whole lot more. <laughs> we can keep going. That's, that that was wow. fascinating. I, I was. I, I've, officially, I've officially become the old man in our circle, <laughs> right? You know? So my colleagues are tweezing. They're getting me a pipe and a tweed jacket so I can sit around and tell these stories. Back in my day, when I was a kid. I think it's important to know our history, where Absolutely. we came from, how we started, right, and Absolutely. why we went down these paths. Mm-hmm. When you were working at the beginning and sort of had this first grant. What did you learn to move it forward into this next phase? Yeah, what we learned was all of our approaches to professional development were woefully inadequate. Um, And our logic to try to support educators fell short. So that led us down this other path that I never thought in a million years, uh, somebody was interested in kids with challenging behavior um, we really poured our, ourselves into a bunch of different literatures. So the other thing that you may recall uh, in the 80s, all of a sudden the Japanese auto industry was mm-hmm. taking over, right? So you think about in the 80s, everybody wanted a Honda or Toyota. Why? Well, because they lasted <laughs> beyond the, the usual lifespan of a U.S. built car for two, three years. And so people started getting curious, like, why? Why are, why are the Japanese automakers outperforming U.S. automakers, right? We, we, we invented the automobile. I mean, if you ask anybody around the planet, that's what we're known for, right? Pub culture and cars. So we started looking at all of that total quality management. And there were lots of people who are in the corporate world were writing about how their strategy to building systems to produce fewer problems in their automobiles and a better product when it came off the line, the the corporate America started paying attention to. So we started looking at total quality management. I started going to sessions that were geared for corporate CEOs, you know, about, okay, here's what are the key features in systems. Um, The other thing we started really taking a look at was the whole professional development literature. So not many people were writing about it at the time. Uh, We still did a whole lot of the old, what we call is train and hope. So we train you and we hope you remember how to do it. We hope you go back and put it in your classroom. So we started looking at Gusky and some of his early work. And we started looking at folks like Jim Knight and others who were saying, it's not just about the teaching, it's about the practicing and the feedback. So all of those things we were building within the framework, right? What do you want kids to do instead? I.e. positive, teach and practice feedback. We also started saying we have to build parallel systems for the adults, because if we don't build parallel systems for the adults, we're not going to build fluency. Um, We know we weren't preparing them adequately in pre-service programs. We know that the current professional development model was a whole lot of um, kind of just go show up for an hour because it it amuses you (laughs) or entertains you or it it intrigues you and then hope you go back and put it in your classroom. So all of these things, as I said, came together. And through that first grant, what we learned was we've got to pay the bulk of our attention to the adults in the environment, not necessarily the kids. So also simultaneously going on at this time, it was, it was a great time to be uh, uh, in, in special education. It's, it's a great time now. It's a great time always to be a special educator. But there was also kind of the coming together of the field. So you probably all heard about, or if not, uh, I would encourage you to go take a look, the Peacock Hill Working Group um, in the early 90s. So this group of eminent scholars in the field got together and said, you know what, we know how 
to help young people improve their lives. We know how to increase appropriate behavior. The problem is nobody's listening. Nobody's putting it in place. And again, the missing ingredient that we saw was, well, because we're not teaching them to do it and we're not changing how schools run to accomplish it, right? And, and, and this is all also not to say that all of this work is focused just solely on kids with disabilities or solely kids mm -hmm. with uh, emotional behavior disorders. Because as I said, the other piece that was going on at this time is this notion of early intervention and prevention and how if we help educators at the onsets, right, we're going to prevent a whole lot of, of those later life challenges and problems. So all of this is happening. I think the other piece that I would be remiss to mention, the, the work from the Oregon Social Learning Center, Jerry Patterson, uh, John Reed, Tom Sean, Hill Walker and others, we're teaching us an amazing amount about antisocial behavior. Uh, and basically the short story on that is they demonstrated that kids learned, quote unquote, to be antisocial. They weren't born that way. It basically was how they were shaped, how they were reared, how their parents raised them. So other folks like Roy Mayer were taking a look at that literature and saying, you know, all the things they're telling us don't do, right? we do those in school. So there were early folks in the mid eighties were also saying, wait a minute, all the practices we're putting in place, zero tolerance, get tough, mm -hmm. come down heavy, actually make behavior worse, not better. Mm -hmm. So all of these things as said came together at the right time and we just happened to be sort of in the right place, right time. Uh, and I think what happened is our shift in focus in looking at school systems. In other words, how do we support each other? How do we support the educators that we're now asking to rethink what their classroom looks like or rethink what their school day looks like? So all of these things came together. Uh, 1997, um, IDA was reauthorized, and that's the first time we saw the term positive behavioral interventions and supports. It's also the first time we saw within the law the, the notion about function and conducting functional behavioral assessments to develop those plans for kids, again, with really significant challenging behavior. So our center was funded in 1998. Uh, and the original mission, uh, it was an open RFA, uh, people could compete, um, was to help schools, districts, and states implement the provisions of IDA 1997, right? Specifically around functional behavioral assessment and creating positive behavioral intervention and support plans. We immediately jumped on that. We were fortunately funded, but we also from the very beginning said, we will absolutely meet that mission. But what we've been learning through these past projects in the early mid nineties is that none of this will go anywhere until we build effective school-wide systems. So I can sit down with a special ed teacher and I can teach him or her how to do a functional assessment and create a behavior plan. And it might do beautifully as long as that kid's in that classroom, classroom. that teacher and all the other kids and subjects don't change. But that's not the reality. Kids go to different teachers. They uh, walk down the hallway. They go have lunch in the cafeteria. So we, we embrace that, uh, that mission in charge, but at the same time said, hey, we, we want to continue on this path of thinking about school-wide. You can begin to see in your story, Tim, the circles forming. So when people see the circles, they can see how you got to the circles. And I suspect as you move forward and you think about the whole school, it's going to show a visualization of the triangle as well. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, our initial work, we, we were just all about universals. We basically wanted to see, could we um, help educators shape their school environments to one, prevent problems, two, to be responsive when things first bubble up, and then three, so if you think about the continuum, the triangle with the three tiers, if you build good universals, because we're also simultaneously in the background focusing specific on kids with IEPs, those kids will fare better, right? So what we're doing is priming the pump, if you will. Mm -hmm. So if everybody in the school, for example, is talking about being kind and respectful, when I develop that individual plan, I'm gonna teach being kind and being respectful and I'm gonna map it to the function. So that way, when that young person leaves my classroom, every adult they interact with is using the same language and they're giving me feedback if they see me doing it the quote unquote appropriate way. So we, we originally were really just focused on can we get universals? Can we get good environments? Simultaneously continuing to build the technology. So yeah, the circles, you know, the data practice systems, you are absolutely right. Uh, you know, we drafted that in our early EBS work, thinking about, okay, where do we need to focus and pay attention? The practices we felt fairly confident were already there. We had enough evidence-based strategies, instructional management, behavior change. As I said, uh, um, the FBA, BIP research was taking off lots of demonstrations. We were also conducting research. We got another research grant looking at the application because I said it originally uh, the genesis was in the severe community. So we wanted to know, well, does it apply for kids with mild disabilities? Right? So kids who can communicate, they can tell you, uh, and they do quite, uh, quite loudly, right? Mm -hmm. Usually with very colorful language uh, mm -hmm. when they're not happy about something. Um, so we started playing with that technology with kids with mild disabilities and those at risk. So as I said, all of these things started coming together. We were confident the practices were there. What we didn't know about were the database decision-making uh, because folks just weren't doing it. Again, outside of IEP process, very few schools were looking at data other than the data they required to report to the state, right? The systems piece uh, is where we spent most of our time and energy. Again, the professional development, the coaching models, teaming, the structures of the team, again, going back to all the total quality management, ideas. Uh, you know, when we talk about the principal is a non-negotiable in the team, but the principal doesn't need to be the leader of the team. In fact, they should tap leadership, right? That's something that comes right from total quality management. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when folks started looking at some of the auto production, again, in, in Japan in the early 80s, anybody on that line could hold the line up and say, wait a minute, there's a mistake here. Or anybody during a meeting could say, you know, this might work better if we do it this way. It wasn't just this top down. So all those pieces were coming together. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, when we first started the center, we said, sure, we can do this. Uh, there were, I don't know, 10 of us and then not a lot of money. Uh, and we quickly realized there's a whole lot more schools out there than there are us. So what we did is we said, okay, we know or we have a good idea of what the system needs to look like in a school. How do we parallel that framework for ourselves as a technical assistance and dissemination center. Um, so, you know, we identified um, kind of these, these four guiding principles and we didn't sit down and say, okay, let's draft some principles, but they, they sort of emerged in that first. So the center 
uh, is funded for five years. It's recompeted. We have to recompete every uh, five-year cycle. So we're in our fifth um, cycle. But in that very first five-year um, cycle, we started thinking about, okay, um, how do we do this? Uh, so one of the first things we decided to do is we weren't going to create a program, a package, or a curriculum. So one of the things we know is that any sort of curriculum we put in place is going to be effective for a lot of kids, but it's not going to work for some. And unless we teach schools, districts how to differentiate and do that very strategically, it's going to fail and people are going to throw their hands up and walk away. Like, See, this doesn't work. This positive behavior support stuff doesn't work. So the first was, let's stay true to kind of the system problem solving framework. So the infamous circles, right? The second, we, we had to think about, okay, there's not huge buckets of money coming into schools or districts. So how do we pull off school-wide system change with existing resources? So in our early week, we talked about, oh, you have to have a school psychologist on the team. Yeah, you have to have your counselor on the team. You have to have um, all of these people and, and roles. Uh, but that with, even within the first five years, um, you know, the way we're organized now and even then is we, we partner with states. And one of my states is Montana. Uh, and I remember going to these, these very remote school districts and we talked about this and they're looking at us like, yeah, no, we don't have those people. <laughs> it's like, I'm the superintendent. I'm also the high school principal. I teach math. I coach wrestling. And sometimes I have to drive the bus. <laughs> so we don't have school psychologists and SLPs and all of these people. So that led us into our thinking about the function those people serve, not their role. And so we start saying, okay, okay, we, we hear you. We get that. But what we do need is somebody that has this set of skills. So how can we skill those people up? The third was the data piece, you know, that, that initial circle. Um, and, and this is one of the things that I think our center has been criticized a fair bit about. It's like, well, you know, you're positive. Why is it that you have schools count in fractions? You know, why do you focus on suspensions and all of the, the quote unquote discipline interactions? Uh, and, and our response was, well, because every school in America collects that, right? Elementary school, maybe <laughs> on bits and scraps of paper, but everybody collected those. And we said, well, let's start with something they're already doing. And if we're gonna ask schools to collect additional data, it has to serve multiple purposes, right? So that's why we, we went with office discipline referrals uh, because they're already collecting that. And, and you know, we kept communicating, look, all data collection is simply a sample of behavior. It's not the sum total, we know that. Similar to a test, I, you sit down, I give you a math test, that's a sample of your math ability in that moment, right? Um, but we, we, we realized we needed tools to help them plan. So one of the first tools we developed was the EBS survey, the Effective Behavior Support sur or Survey, which is now the Self-Assessment Survey. Uh, it wasn't designed to be a fidelity tool. It was literally designed just to be uh, a guide or a way for teams to start planning. Um, and so what we did is we, we identified those critical features across universals, and, and you notice, right, it goes right from universal to individual. Uh, there was no tier two at the time. Uh, tier two was, was down the track, so to speak. Um, so we started developing tools. Uh, and at some point, <laughs> if, you, if, you're, if you know about PBIS, there were too many tools. Uh, and people were saying, enough. 
And so we've greatly scaled back and, and we've, we've pulled back into just a couple through now. Um, and then the last guiding principle was this has got to fit big urban high schools with 6,000 kids. It's got to fit that small Montana school of 12 and everything in between. And so that's why I said we didn't do a program or a package or a curriculum. We, we helped teams or we attempted to help teams look at their own data, identify a range of practices in their evidence base, um, but then carefully looking at that match. Our data say they need this, so that's what we need to hunt down. The whole issue even of the cultural context, um, we were paying attention to in 1998. Uh, and, and I think one of the mistakes we maybe made is we didn't make it salient enough for folks. You know, our thinking was, well, of course, you know, get community input. If you're in a small community, lots of indigenous, get their input. If you are in an urban setting, you serve large percentages of a Hispanic, uh, get their input. We didn't make that, I think, salient enough. Um, and, and I think we've done a much better job over the years in, in highlighting that importance of that cultural context piece, not just the, the cultural context of the school, but the cultural context of that community. So my mind's just kind of blown. Uh, and I well, and I say that because you've, you've brought up so many different things that even though I've done this work for a long time, I haven't always known the backstory of everything. And so I find it fascinating. I also don't have a special education background besides being an LEA as an administrator, right? So I learned a lot on the job when it comes to a lot of things. So I find a lot of this just very interesting. You had talked about how it started off as EBS, and then now we know it's the center on, you know, PBIS, but we know that sometimes people call it PBS, call it PBIS. Is it the same? Is it different? Does it matter? It's when we say PBS, we're not referring to the broadcasting station, right? So can you kind of talk about, is it the same thing? Is it different? You know, just that whole scope of it, because I think sometimes people get confused on what it actually is. And also, can you talk about, you kept mentioning a framework. Yeah. Can you kind of talk about, you know, overall what that framework kind of looks like or, or talk to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So um, the term positive behavior support was used a lot in the literature, particularly again, the non-aversive. Um, so if you look back um, at some of the work in the early eighties, you, you would see the term, you know, what we need to do is develop positive behavior supports. Right, not trying to just simply eliminate problem behavior. When the law was passed and the regulations were written, or the law was reauthorized in 97, and the regulations were written, in essence, that was the rub. <laughs> you can't use PBS. Uh, that is a trademark of the public broadcast uh, system, as you said. So the, the decision, and, and I don't know the, the actual true origins of this, um, but when they were drafting the revisions, and, and so this is the Office of Special Education Program, they made a concerted effort. And, and there was also some conversation about keeping that term interventions in there um, such that it aligns with the logic of the IEP process. So not just sort of positive behavior like, oh, we're going to be cheerful and greet the kid in the morning, but no, that you actually are doing something uh, strategically and in, in response to the current challenges that young person is showing. So uh, it, it wasn't just to avoid copyright infringement. Uh, there, was some, there was some strategy in thinking about 
we want to make sure that we highlight or they highlight the intervention piece. So our center is the center on PBIS because that's what OSEP says your center will be called because that's what's in the law and that all makes sense. But but to your point, Tricia, it, you know we've often said it, it it doesn't matter what you call it. I tend to use school PBS a lot more than PBIS, um, and people are talking now about MTSS and RTI. All of it is the same, if you will. What we've always emphasized, and that loops back to your framework question, is it's not what you call it. Uh, and it's not a lockstep program. It's this logic, this framework. So one of the things we're really good at in education is that we're presented with a problem and you put a group of people around a table and you say, here's the problem. They will go. <laughs> they will start throwing out ideas and talking about it. And, and they'll talk about the little brother that did the same thing. And they'll talk about all of this stuff. What we found was, is that educators, just by nature of our profession, are problem solvers, right? Because that's what we see every day. We have 30 little problems to solve as they walk into our room every morning uh, in terms of how do I teach all of these kids to get to the same outcome, but all of them come from very different places and different learning histories. Um, so the framework was a way for us to organize that conversation and was a way for us to make sure during the conversation, the team paid attention to the critical pieces that our research and colleagues' research were showing are critical to actually achieve an outcome. Right, so that the, the idea of data, what data do you look at? Okay, we put data in front of people and they say, yeah, we got a problem, but they don't know what to do next, right? So that's, that's when, again, within our center, we developed the school-wide information system. It wasn't because we needed one more, you know, electronic database, but what that did is it helped teams drill down. So at least run these, the big five, we call them, right? Now you're noticed during a time of day, there's an increase, we'll drill down. What's the location? Is it just a small group of kids or is it a lot of kids? So what we did is we tried to do kind of, a, again, we're all special educators by background. We did a task analysis of how you problem solve. How do you look at data and, and distill it and drill down? Then once you get to the, okay, it's this group of kids at this table during lunch. Now, what's the practice? We don't need a school-wide thing. What we need is a strategic way to build in some of those cafeteria procedures, for example. Um, and then the systems, who typically supervises lunch? Not teachers, you know, we rely on our paraprofessionals or we rely on that one assistant principal. We gotta make sure the assistant principal and paraprofessional knows our new procedure during the cafeteria to try to minimize the problem among this table, because if it's happening now at this table, it's probably gonna start happening at other tables as well. So that's what I mean by a framework. What we did is we gave them the structures to go through, to get to a solution, and then not make assumptions. Like, okay, we got the solution, let's post it on the board and it'll go. No, 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 <laughs> that's just like a fraction of the work. The heavy lifting now comes in supporting each other and making sure we're implementing with fluency. Can we just can we just say it all louder for the people all the way in the back? Because there were so many things that you said there that were just, they were simply powerful. stated, they were <laughs> extremely powerful. And I just wanted to like raise my hands up and be like, yes, there was so much good stuff right there and just 
eat that little pocket of what you just said right there. It was just, it was amazing. So, so I guess I better end this now, right? No, we have more. <laughs> so I have my, I have my one moment of brilliance and then this might end up being a two-parter. Two yeah, but <laughs> I think so the same thing. it's a this might be it's the okay. conclusion of our of our first part. And then we're gonna and go stay into the tuned part. For, and stay yes. tuned. <laughs>